This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who specialize in issues such as isolation, depression, stress, anxiety, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment when you need professional help. Get help at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to learn more and get 10% off your first month. Literally every hour you would hear an overhead call wherever you were in the hospital of a code being called, an emergency airway being called. These are all different announcements over the loudspeaker to tell you there's an emergency in this room or in that room and it's a call to get people there to help. And it would be every single hour, sometimes sometimes three at one time uh, at the surge. Whereas now, thankfully we're hearing the music Uh, the hospital plays when someone's getting discharged so that we could celebrate the the successes, even though there were so many scary moments. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, inside an intensive care unit in New York City, the center of the coronavirus pandemic. At the peak of the COVID-19 outbreak in New York City, about 3,000 patients were seen every day in local hospitals. It was right around that time that some disturbing statistics were revealed. Black and Latino patients were dying at twice the rate of other patients. Manhattan's Bellevue Hospital has historically been at the front lines of public health crises in New York City. We wanted to understand what the situation looks like now at Bellevue, a hospital where 35% of the patients are Latino or Latina. Now, we're no longer at the peak of the pandemic in New York, but intensive care units in the city are still busy. So I asked Dr. Susan Cohn, who works in the hospital's ICU, to take me inside the unit, which is where the most severe cases are treated. Dr. Susan Colm, welcome to Latino USA. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me. Over the phone, safely, Dr. Cohn walked us through the unit. We actually have some rooms with two patients in one ICU cubicle. Almost every cubicle has a big red stop sign telling you that is a room where you need proper PPE to protect you from infection from COVID. So Bellevue's ICU unit has been converted these past several weeks to make more room for COVID-19 patients. So what that looks like is that you have more of these negative pressure rooms installed, which are those rooms where you kind of feel like the air sucks in and sucks out when you open a door. And this keeps the virus from spreading in the air the hospital really transformed itself to accommodate the needs of this pandemic. Can you just describe what you're seeing? Just just describe what you're seeing right now. 
We see which we would not normally see. A lot of information written in magic marker on the glass doors uh, and windows that goes into each ICU cubicle room. So it says things like, you know, this person needs a repeat COVID test or this person is going down for a CAT scan or this person needs to have a, a consult with a certain service. It's like a to-do list. We would never see that in normal times. The other thing we see is uh, IV pumps and IV bags and tubing. It extends into the hallway area outside of the cubicle to adjust an IV bag or an IV drip. It can be done from outside the room. There's a lot of beeping and dinging and uh, IV, IVs beeping, monitors beeping, ventilators beeping. Over the last several weeks, as the city where I live in has become the epicenter, And Latinos and Latinas are dying at higher rates than the percentage of their population in the city. I became intrigued and almost obsessed with wanting to understand. When did you realize that this was, in fact, going to be a pandemic that was going to really attack Latinos and Latinas, Black men and women? Because at Bellevue, we always see a high number of Latino patients, Black patients, It didn't feel any different initially. But then I I did start noticing that my ICU list was all traditionally Latino names or a high majority of Latino names. And and so when they started writing about it in the paper and, and in reports, it didn't surprise me. It does feel like specifically Latino men and we do know that this illness affects men more than women uh, have been impacted by this. So what I wanted was to understand who are those Latinos and Latinas who are in your ICU who are fighting for their lives? In my experience here at Bellevue, it's patients from Mexico, Dominican Republic, Ecuador, El Salvador, and they are hardworking people who were working in their job until the day they got sick. Many of them have extended family here who are very devoted to them and we speak to every day. Others have one or two family members here and the rest of their family is in Guatemala or Mexico or El Salvador and we're calling those countries. We have had several occasions where we've had more than one family member of a family in the hospital or in the ICU or one in this ICU and one in another ICU in another hospital in the city, which is just devastating for these families. So, doctor, you look after patients usually who are battling serious life-threatening diseases. You're a palliative care specialist. Uh, Can you explain that work a little bit and how it applies to what you're doing now during the pandemic? As a palliative care doctor, one of the things we do is we try to get to know people, who they are as as people, right? But most of our patients before coronavirus were so chronically ill that they were no longer working. So the question would be, what did you used to do when you were working? Now it's someone who was at work two days ago and is now in the ICU. That's the real difference. I hope that as healthcare providers, we do try to see our patients for who they are, the personhood aspect of people, and hear their stories, you know. But 
we sort of don't take notice of the delivery person or the person at the construction site as we're driving by because they're not the people we typically see in the hospital. We typically see people with heart failure, serious lung disease, serious liver disease, cancers. These are the people that end up in the hospital, not young, healthy people. We've had patients in the entire adult age range from late teens to 90s. And, you know, some of the 90-year-olds do well and some of the 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds don't. We, there's just no way to predict, really. So you say that you really want to connect with your patients, that that's an important part of the work for you, but you're also suited up in scrubs, you're wearing a mask, you have to keep your distance. So talk to me about losing that sense of touch and closeness during this pandemic. I often will sit down next to a patient and if it's appropriate, I might hold their hand or they might reach out for mine if it's somebody I've developed a relationship with. It's not even not being able to touch them or hold their hand. It's not even being able to go in the room. Um, everybody in the beginning of this pandemic, we didn't know what the PPE supply would be like. So there was a very concerted effort to minimize the number of people going into a room. And fortunately in the ICU, the rooms are glass, so we can see the patient. And then one or two people would go in, usually the nurse and the primary team doctor in the ICU might go in. Or people would go in when they needed to do a procedure, but really limiting the amount of time interacting with the patient. A lot of the patients in the ICU, they're sedated uh, on ventilators and we don't know what they can be aware of in terms of those things. But for the patients on the medical floors where we can't look in through a glass and they are in a room isolated and fewer people are coming in and when they come in, they are masked and gloved and in gowns and the amount of confusion and delirium and um, the interactions being so odd and not normal really, really clearly impact patients. So in the ICU, you have to work closely with families and loved ones, uh, especially now. This is something that you do with a lot of your patients anyway. But throughout this crisis, have you had any interactions with any of the family members that has really stood out for you, doctor? I'm struck by the loving sons and daughters of a parent. You know, I've had both mothers and fathers, where the children are just so devoted to their parents and so worried about their parents, speaking to them every how single day. And really, you know, you really get to know someone when they're sharing how they're coping through what's probably the worst weeks of their life and talking about and thinking about some of the hardest decisions and care that they ever had to think about. No, I don't. I don't want to give away anyone's identity, but um, but I, I have several families where it's just incredibly devoted sons and daughters, and then you see the siblings and how they interact and appoint one of them as the spokesperson, or you know, one of them may be the caregiver in normal time, and another one might be the decision maker regarding healthcare. Just how they come together to support each other. I, I get tearful when I think about the families, not just Latino families, all families have taken the time to thank us for what we're doing. Um, I'm getting chills when I talk about it. 
I've also been saddened to hear patients worry about what they read in the paper. Will my loved one get a ventilator if there's not enough? I reassure everybody that there, nobody has gone without because there wasn't enough of something. But people have covertly and overtly asked that question of me, uh, worrying that they'll be rationing and that their loved one won't get something. And I've heard them worry that saying things like, I promise we'll pay you later, worrying about their loved one not getting care because they can't pay. I, I always stop the conversation very uh, sternly and reassure them that we're proud to be in a hospital that serves everyone, regardless of the ability to pay, regardless of insurance status. But to think that this is what they're worrying about at home before I talk to them is just heart-wrenching. Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate your time and, and all of the work that you're doing on a daily basis. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for all you do and thank you for having me. This episode was produced by Alejandra Salazar and edited by Sofia Palizaca. The Latino USA team includes Miel Macias, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoca, Jeannie Montalvo, and Alisa Escarce, with help from Raul Perez. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our New York Women's Foundation Ignite Fellow is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, look for us on all of your social media. And remember, stay safe, stay inside, and stay healthy. Hasta la próxima. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. On Bullseye this week, Tina Fey. On creating Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 30 Rock, and being the best at everything. There was a window of time when we would just go to awards things and pick up our prizes and party with the people from Mad Men. That's this week on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we travel to Tapachula, the new frontier for asylum seekers trying to get to the United States. They're stuck at the border between Mexico and Guatemala, a place where thousands of migrants are being made to wait indefinitely. That's next time on Latino USA. 